Death is the ultimate expression of suffering. If we don't have hope in facing death, how can we be ready to live properly? Charlie found that he was ready. Are you ready? The death rate is 100%. The current crisis that we're in should remind us of, or demonstrate to us how fragile life actually is. One of my favorite songs is a song by the band Switchfoot called Where I Belong. And there's some lines in there that say, but I'm not sentimental. This skin and bones is a rental and no one makes it out alive. Now, you may think, well, it's morbid to think about death. It's morbid to talk about death. But it seems like to me it's wise to be prepared for something that we know is a certain reality. So we can't control how long we live, but we can control whether or not we're actually ready to die. But even beyond that, how are we going to live day to day? Uh, I was talking about uh, last year, uh, latter part of last year, you know, realizing that this year I'm going to turn 50. And that kind of freaked me out a, a little bit, to be honest about it. It made me maybe a little more reflective, maybe uh, think about the past and the future, uh, maybe a little more than I usually do, because I'm usually somebody that lives, uh, you know, in, in a moment to a, to a large degree. Um, and it, like I say, it just kind of really made me think about some things. Well, that only got increased when Robin was diagnosed with uh, cancer earlier this year. And we're thankful, you know, that she's cancer-free uh, now. But, uh, you know, it just really made me think about, okay, what's life about? What's, what's really important? You know, how short life uh, really is. And, and so I think that, you know, with all this uncertainty, we need to be ready for death. But we need to be ready to live each day to the full, doing the will of God, to live uh, for something that's going to outlive us. And and that's how I want to live uh, my life. And I believe that uh, the way that we can do that is by living for Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead, which makes him the answer for both life and death. And so as today we're concluding this series, uh, Suffering and Good News, uh, I want us to see that we can ultimately have hope in our suffering because Jesus rose from the dead. He gives us hope right now. He gives us hope for eternity. He gives us hope in facing death, which is the end and the ultimate expression of our suffering. Now you say, well, okay, why is this true? And that's what I want to try to show to you in, in, in our time together uh, today. Uh, you know, when I was in college, I went through a period of, of doubt and kind of wrestling with whether or not I really believed the Bible, whether or not uh, I was really going to be a follower of Christ. And I was a history major, and I focused my studies on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I kind of came into it with these two thoughts, that if Jesus rose from the dead, the rest of it's true, and that if he rose from the dead, I should give my life follow him wholeheartedly, or if not, I should chuck the whole thing. And so part of what I want to do today is to challenge you to get off the fence with Jesus. Because some of you know about Jesus, but do you really know him? Are you really following him? Is he really truly what your life is about? Is he really truly your hope in facing both life and uh, death? And so as I studied that and wrestled with that, 
I believe that there are compelling reasons, and I'm going to show some of them to you as we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today, as compelling reasons to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But I don't want to leave it there because really where we're going to go and really the point of this message is to focus on two particular results of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, if he really did rise from the dead. And so uh, what I want us to see is that if, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection, which gives us a hope in facing death. But then I want us to see uh, the resurrection of Jesus also gives us a purpose in living our lives. But I want us to think about up front that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the flip side is also true that we don't have a hope in facing death. And we don't have a purpose really in living our lives right now because I believe that comes from Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection, which gives us a hope in facing death. So let's kind of look at the first part of that to begin with. This question, okay, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he didn't rise, we're not going to rise. So there's not an answer for death. So I want us to see, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, that the resurrection is historically factual. In these verses, the Apostle Paul claims that Christ was literally and bodily raised from the dead. And I believe this is either history or it's a hoax. It's fact or it's a farce. There's not really middle ground uh, here. Uh, So let's look at what Paul claims. Let's read these verses. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand. By which you're also saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So what he's doing... And these first four verses is he's laying out the gospel. And he's saying, uh, I, I received this. It was, it was a, an early church creed is what most scholars believe. But it also corresponds with what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah who came and lived, who died for our sins, who was buried and rose from the dead. And that's the good news because if we believe that, we are saved from our sins, saved into a relationship with God that gives us eternal life. And so he makes this claim, dead, buried, risen, and then he lays out some of the evidence for it. Verse 5, and that and that he was seen by Cephas, which was the Aramaic name for Peter, then by the twelve, uh, talking about the disciples. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some had fallen asleep. He's saying when he wrote this, which was probably around 25 years or so when he was writing 1 Corinthians, uh, it was a letter to a church in Corinth, we know it as 1 Corinthians in our Bibles today, about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus approximately, He's saying there was an appearance to over 500 people. Some of those people have died, but a lot of them are still alive. So it's kind of like eyewitness testimony, go ask them for yourself. It says, after that, he was seen by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And remember, Jesus' family was skeptical. They kind of thought he was crazy at, at various times. Then by all the apostles. 
Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. He's saying, I personally saw him, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so let me lay out in just a few minutes, and this is the kind of thing that we could talk about for hours. I mean, I spent a while studying this. But let me, let me lay out four facts here that, that Paul gives that are solid evidence for the historical reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, he's saying here in these verses that this was an early church creed that was passed on to the apostle Paul. Now you say, why is this significance? And there's a lot of technical things that I could go into here that I'm not. Just want to say a couple quick things about it. Uh, first of all, it's significant that it was an early church creed because it means that Paul's not just saying this on his own, but he's repeating, he's sharing what the church already believed, uh, and, and he's, he's passing on what was commonly I I accepted. Um, historians and scholars con uh, consider this to be solid evidence, and a lot of people date it back to even two or three years of the resurrection of Jesus, which would mean there wasn't time for legend. Uh, to arise. You know, sometimes people say all this was made up hundreds of years after the fact, but historically, that's not the case. It, it, it shows uh, just the reliability of Scripture from a historical standpoint, as many other things uh, do. And then there's also uh, evidence outside of just the Bible for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there's uh, no better attested event historically in the ancient world than uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ. If you're going to say the Bible's not reliable, then you have to throw away uh, a ton of ancient literature because there's more manuscripts, there's more eyewitnesses that are making these claims, so on and so forth. So that's a first fact. A second fact is that Jesus definitely died on the cross and was buried in a sealed tomb that was guarded by soldiers, but that tomb was empty on Sunday. So consider what the Bible's claiming here. Really, he had to be dead after everything that he went through. If you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, I think that's a fairly historically accurate representation of what uh, actually happened. And you know, sometimes there's, there's theories say Jesus just swooned and then he revived in the tomb and that kind of thing. I think it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe he actually died and God raised him from the dead. He was really dead. The soldiers took steps to make sure that Jesus was dead, uh, piercing his side up through uh, to his heart uh, with a spear uh, that verified that he was already dead. Joseph of Arimathea took the body. They followed the, the standard Jewish burial practices. They weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. They secured the tomb. The tomb was sealed with the Roman seal. A squad of soldiers was placed there uh, to guard it. And so there's uh, lots of reason to believe that he actually died on a cross, that he was buried. But then the Bible claims that the tomb was empty on Sunday. So why should we believe that? Well, uh, you know, I would just raise the question, if, if, 
wasn't empty, why didn't they produce a body and just shut up Christianity forever? Because they were proclaiming Jesus in Jerusalem, risen from the dead, in the face of persecution, less than two months later, they could have produced a body. Here's the third fact that we need to think about, and that is Christ appeared to many of his followers on several occasions in the weeks that followed. So the claim is the tomb was empty, And then the claim is that people actually saw him risen from the dead. Uh, Claims that uh, the Bible makes of this. Mary Magdalene near the tomb, John 20. The women returning from the tomb, Matthew 28. Peter in Luke 24. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. All the disciples assembled together except for Thomas, John chapter 20. All the disciples, including Thomas, uh, once again in John chapter 20. Seven disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, John 21. The disciples on an appointed mountain in Galilee, Matthew 28. 500 people assembled together, as is referenced here. James, the half-brother of Jesus, as is, re- as is referenced here. The apostles at the ascension, Acts 1. And, and Saul, the persecutor, who became Paul the apostle, as he claims here, and is recorded in Acts chapter 9. So these people claimed that the tomb was empty. They claimed that Jesus had appeared to them after he was risen from the dead. And so the question then becomes... Why should we believe this? I mean, there's uh, lots of reasons historically to know that they actually wrote this, but that doesn't make it true in and of itself because people say lots of things that aren't true. And if I told you I'd risen from the dead, you're probably just not going to automatically believe that, nor should you. So the question then becomes, Why should we believe them? And here's the fourth fact that I want to give you that I'd encourage you to consider. And that is that the lives of Christ's followers were radically transformed by the empty tomb and the appearances. Here's some things that I I want you to think about. The disciples died for what they claimed to see. Not something they claim to believe. Lots of people have died for things they claim to believe. But they knew whether or not they saw this. And who would knowingly die for a lie? Why would so many of them go to their death claiming that they saw Jesus risen from the dead if it was a lie? Uh, Charles Coulson, you know, who's famously indicted during the Watergate scandal, then became a Christian, started prison fellowship, written many Christian books, said part of the reason why he believes the, the, the resurrection is true is because of how quickly the Watergate uh, conspiracy uh, just folded. It, I mean, he said like the most powerful men in the world couldn't maintain a lie for more than a few weeks. How did these disciples for years under persecution and death maintain this as a lie if it was a lie? And he said, you know, that's part of the reason why he believes that it's true. Think about it. The church developed. Why did these Jews who, uh, you know, worship in the synagogue and in the temple uh, start, uh, you know, create the church if they weren't following Jesus who died and rose from the dead and then told them to found the church. They abandoned the sacrificial system. They began to emphasize faith over keeping uh, the law. Uh, They changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. They confessed Jesus as God. In other words, they embraced the Trinity coming out of a uh, strictly monotheistic Jewish background. They changed Passover to communion. They began baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as 
as a public confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Where did this come from if they were making up the resurrection? A couple other things I would encourage you to think about as well is in the Gospels. The women are presented as the first eyewitnesses at the tomb. You say, why is that so significant? Well, uh, culturally, things were different then. And in Jewish society, women, a woman's word didn't really mean anything. She couldn't testify in a court of law. So if you were making up this story, why would you present someone whose word was meaningless, who couldn't testify in a court, in a, in a court of law as the first eyewitnesses giving testimony to this. To me, either that means the story's true or you must be a really bad liar. I mean, why would you make that up and, and, and you know, have them as the first eyewitnesses if you're making it up? Think about the conversion of skeptics. I mean, Saul was persecuting Christians. And then he became one. How do you explain the difference? I mean, even secular historical books will uh, you know, recognize that he was persecuting Christians and then he became a missionary. What made the transformation? He said it was the resurrection. Why should we doubt that? I mean, think about Jesus' brother James. Like I said, his family uh, thought he was crazy, but now he's worshiping him as God. What's it going to take for you to worship your brother as God? Maybe a resurrection? And so I think when we consider those pieces of evidence, it gives us reason to believe their claims that the tomb was empty and that Jesus appeared to them. I believe, based on the evidence, that the resurrection is historically factual. But I want us to see next that in this passage that Paul goes on to claim that the resurrection is logically necessary. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, notice what he says uh, starting in verse 12. He says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So he's saying if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, preaching is pointless. I'm wasting my words. You're wasting your time uh, listening. That our faith is empty. That if you believe in Christ, that you're believing in nothing. There's no point to your faith. And then he says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. In other words, we're lying on God. If we're saying that he rose Jesus from the dead, if the resurrection didn't happen, he says, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. In fact, if in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's empty. You are still in your sin. So in other words, if you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, you believe you're forgiven and going to heaven. If he didn't rise from the dead, you're deluded. You're deceived. Um, he says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, there's no hope after death. And then he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men the most pitiable. People ought to pity us laugh at us if we're basing our faith, if we're basing our lives on this delusion. It's why everything rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. It's why I say it's either a fact or a farce, hoax or history. Did he really rise from the dead? If he did, I want to build my life on him. But if he didn't, I don't want to build my life on a lie. I don't want to live my life uh, under a deception. I don't want to waste my life living for something that's empty and vain and fake and meaningless. So what do you really believe? Not the Sunday school answer, but what do you really believe about the resurrection of Jesus? Do you really believe that he rose from the dead? 
So now, as we move on to the rest of this passage, I'm going to do it with the, the assumption, the belief that Jesus did ro- rise from the dead, that Paul is telling the truth, and we're going to just uh, look at what he says is the results of that, what happens because Jesus rose from the dead. If you're not sure, if you have questions, if you'd like to talk, uh, get, in, get in touch with us. Message us. Email us. We'll have those numbers up at the end. Let somebody know in the chat room. We've got some stuff you can read. We'd love to talk with you. But, but next, I want us to see that, like I said, assuming that Jesus rose from the dead, that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. In, in these uh, first 19 verses, Paul has laid a historical and a logical foundation. He's made a case for the resurrection. But then over the next several verses, he begins to lay out what that actually practically means for our lives. Look at what he says in verses 20 through 22. He says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is like the first and best part of the harvest. He's saying Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. Uh, Jesus himself said in John 14, Because I live, you shall live also. He's the first fruits. He's the guarantee of our resurrection. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. He's saying the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. Here's kind of the the theology behind it. When Adam and Eve sinned, the wages of sin is death. God spared them physically, but they died spiritually. And everyone who's ever been born since then has been born dead in their trespasses and sins, spiritually separated from God. But when we trust Christ and are born again, we're made spiritually alive. But someday, everybody's going to die. And in the biblical definition of death is separation. And at death, the, the immaterial part of us, the soul or the spirit, separates from the physical part of us. If you're in Christ, your spirit goes to heaven. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And someday, at the return of Christ, when there's uh, the resurrection, you're going to get a new glorified body that's going to be joined with your spirit. And this is going to be your eternal uh, body, your eternal home. That's what the Bible presents. What do you believe? And remember, there's only so many options. Humanism or atheism says there's no soul, so the grave is the end. Eastern religion would say we're in this cycle of reincarnation. Some religions say, well, we can work our way to God. We can work our way to heaven. Some say, well, the the idea of universalism, that everybody's going to die and go to heaven. But the Bible says that Jesus is the way to God. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, there can be eternal life. And so what this means then, practically, is that Death, even though it's an enemy, even though we hate suffering, even though we don't want to die, we don't want to be sick, we don't want to watch somebody die, that death is a defeated enemy through the cross, through the resurrection, and that death for the believer is ultimately, even though we may not want to go through the process of getting dead, that death is actually uh, transportation, so to speak, into the presence of God. Uh, probably one of my favorite stories, favorite illustrations, uh, goes back to a famous preacher of the last century, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And 
he, his wife died at a young age, and he was left to raise uh, his, his kids. And he was traveling, preaching. He had his kids with him. And uh, he was in a, a small town preaching at a church that week. And he was out and about in the town during the day, kind of around noon. And um, so they were kind of in downtown, and, and, there, and there was a building, and there was a, 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 a truck parked outside that building. And with where the sun was positioned, the brightness where the truck was and everything, it, it cast the shadow of the truck on uh, the side of, of one of those buildings. And uh, Barnhouse was known as a master of sermon illustrations, and I guess that's just how his mind worked. And he saw this illust- an illustration in, in, in what he was visualizing here that he thought might help his children because they were struggling with the death uh, of their mom. And so he, he called his kids over and he said, Kids, you see that truck? Yes, Dad. You see the shadow of the truck on that building? Yes, Dad. And uh, he asked him this question. He said, kids, would you rather get run over by that truck or by the shadow of the truck? And his kids were like, Dad, that's a silly question. Of course we'd rather get run over by the shadow instead of the truck. And he said, kids, I want you to know this. However painful it is for us, and it may feel like we've gotten run over by a truck, but I want you to know for, for your mom... She just got run over by a shadow because Jesus had defeated death. And when she died, she went to be with him. And we may not feel okay, but she's okay. In Christ, death isn't like getting run over by a truck. It's like getting run over by a shadow. And so what this means then is because the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection, this practically gives us a hope in facing death. It gives us a hope in facing death. And let me just say just some basic practical things about this. One of my favorite quotes from theologian D.A. Carson says, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. So know that whatever you're going through right now, this is your hope. And, and, and I know you don't want to be suffering. I don't want to be suffering. I know we want to be delivered. But there's nothing that's going on that a good resurrection can't fix. There is a better day coming. This means that my future is as secure as the resurrection of Jesus. My future is as secure as the resurrection of Jesus. If I know that I'm going to die, and I know that I can't control when I'm going to die, I need to have an answer for that death. I mean, think about it. Uh, Paul himself and, and many of the people that he's writing about here were martyred for their faith in Christ. But they still had hope. And my hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. The security of my future is not in myself or in this world or in my circumstances. What security is there there? My security is in the one who rose from the dead. And then... We need to know that this will mark the end of our suffering. Uh, later on in this passage, Paul goes on to describe what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. And he goes into a lot of detail and a lot of verses. I just want to read a f- uh, few of them for you so we'll know what we have to look forward to. He says, starting in verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. That's our body right now. It's in decay. We're going downhill 
but it's raised in incorruption where there's no more decay. Sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, we're weak right now. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And that's Jesus Christ. He says, however, the, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust, Adam. The second man, Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's us, and we're going to die like him. And it is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. In other words, if we're in Christ instead of just in Adam in our sin, someday we're going to uh, die, but we're going to be resurrected and receive this glorious, powerful spiritual body that's in the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be like forever. The resurrection of Jesus uh, guarantees our resurrection and it gives us a hope in facing death. Uh, what does that look like practically? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Gary Habermas is um, one of the most famous defenders of the resurrection in particular, the, the Christian faith in general, debated many people. Uh, there, there's a book um, where he debated uh, with a man by the name of Anthony Flew, who at, at that time was one of the most well-known atheists in the world, who eventually became a theist and wrote a book about that. Um, so Gary Habermas has written several books about the resurrection, but uh, his wife, Debbie, died of stomach cancer in 1995. And as she was dying in, the, in their home, he called this the worst time of his life. But in an interview with Lee Strobel that was put in the case for Christ, uh, he talked about how his students would come and try to comfort him and, and cheer him up in his struggle and, and suffering and say things like, at a time like this, aren't you glad for the resurrection? And, uh, you know, he said it encouraged him in two ways. One, that his students were trying to encourage him with his own teaching. And two, that it worked. But uh, it, it was still hard. And, you know, he's still wrestling with God about this. And, uh, you know, as, as he wrestled with God and, and as he prayed, and as he went through this, he said he felt like that God just kept asking him this question. Did I raise my son from the dead? You know, and it's he's like, you know, what about Debbie and all these things? He says, God just kept coming back to him. Did I raise my son from the dead? He says he finally got his point, God's point, and, and, and this is what he said about this. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death in 1995. And you know what? It worked for me while I was sitting on the porch, and it still works today. It was a horribly emotional time for me, but I couldn't get around the fact that the resurrection is the answer for her suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone. But there wasn't a time when that truth didn't comfort me. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it can get me through anything. It was good for 30 AD, it's good for 1995, it's good for 1998, and it's good beyond that. That's not some sermon. I believe that with all my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie was raised, and I will be someday too. Then I'll see them both. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection. It gives us a hope in facing death. But I believe at the same time, it also gives us a purpose in living life. Because I believe, really, if we're not ready uh, to die, we're not really ready to live. The Bible talks about the fear of death being a bondage. Are you in bondage to that? Maybe the best illustration I've ever heard of that was the famous baseball player, Mickey Mantle, who became a Christian shortly before he died, was led to Christ by one of his teammates, Bobby Richardson. But shortly before his death, he did an interview with People Magazine. And in that interview, the interviewer asked him like, with, uh, how successful you were, you know, famous, how famous you were, everything you had going for you. Why did you struggle so much with alcohol? And he said, I know exactly why. He said, my uh, father died of Hodgkin's disease around 40. My grandfather had died of Hodgkin's disease around 40. And I thought the same thing was going to happen to me. And it scared me to death. And I drank to cope with it. If we don't have an answer for death, we don't really have an answer for life. As you heard Charlie's testimony earlier, he talked about how he wasn't afraid in facing death, but he said things in there that show how Jesus has changed his life now, how it's different. And and this is what uh, the Apostle Paul addresses in the next few verses here, how that the resurrection of Jesus does not just change our eternity, it changes our life right now. It gives us a purpose in living life. He says here, starting in verse 29, He says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And that verse is a little hard to understand. There's different interpretations of it. But I think at its root, it's saying something pretty simple. It's saying, you know, baptism, when someone's immersed, it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, what's the point of being baptized if there's no resurrection of the dead? There's no point to any of it. He says in verse 30, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? In other words, why am I laying my life on the line for Jesus if there's no resurrection of the dead? He says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. He says, if in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that was Epicurean philosophy of his day. We know it as hedonism today. The idea that the the chief end of life is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. In other words, if this life is all there is, if we're going to die someday and just go into the ground, we better make the most of it right now, which is how a lot of people just simply live their lives. Uh, I read an article about hedonism and psychology today, and it basically said that um, it wastes life and it ends up hurting other people. But, you know, if, if, if the grave is the end, we better enjoy life as much as we can right now. We better make the most out of it. But if Jesus rose from the dead, what I'm saying is we actually have something to someone really to live for. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who rose from the dead. You know, I, I told you before that as I was wrestling with this, I determined to study the resurrection. And, and I determined if it was true, I was going to commit my life to Christ. If it wasn't, I was just going to reject the whole thing. Wasn't going to play church. Wasn't going to play religious games. Well, 
I guess because of the fact I'm standing here talking about the resurrection of Jesus, it's pretty obvious what I decided. And can I just tell you, I don't have any regrets about doing that. Jesus gives us a purpose, a reason to live that's not just for now. It's eternal. He gives us presence, peace, hope, strength, guidance, help in the midst of our suffering. Listen, life has so many questions. There's a lot of things that I don't understand. I don't know fully what you're going through right now and what kind of pain that you're in. And you may be like, why God? And I'm not going to pretend to be able to answer that question. I don't want to try to give just simple, glib uh, answers to what's going on in the world or what's going on in your life. But I do believe that I can confidently affirm that Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer, that he is the ultimate hope because he did rise from the dead. And I want to ask you, what do you believe? What's your life say that you believe? Not the Sunday school answer, but are you really trusting him? Are you really following him? Or do you just know about him? He's someone to live for. He's worth dying for. Are are you living for him? Are you ready to face death? Some of you need to get off the fence with Jesus. Some of you are Christians, but you've not really been living for Christ. Today, you need to repent of that and surrender to him and say, Jesus, I'm going to get off the fence. You are first in my life. Take control of me. Right now, I just encourage you to reach out to him, to pray, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask him just to fill you with his spirit, to take control of you, to guide you, and help you to live all out for him, giving him first place in your life. There's some of you that are listening. Maybe this is new to you, but God's working in your heart, and you see that Jesus died for you, and that he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But you have to act on that in faith. You have to put your full trust and hope and confidence. Rest your spiritual weight, so to speak, on him and what he has done for you. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you can't save yourself. And uh, turn to Christ in faith, receiving him, confessing him as your Lord and Savior. He invites you. Uh, to do that, to receive him right now. Some of you, maybe you would have even said you're a Christian, or maybe you know about Jesus, but honestly, you've been on the fence. It's just been head knowledge. Today, you need to get off the fence and truly commit your life to, to Jesus, to say, Jesus, I'm really going to live for you. I, I'm, I'm really going to trust you with my life. You are my Lord. I surrender to you. And so, I want to invite you to do that right now, to call on the name of Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to lead you in a prayer of surrender. And, And I just want to encourage you, if God is working in your heart and you have the faith to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, will you just express that faith to him, confess that faith in your words? Will you just surrender your life to him? If you need help in praying, there's nothing magical about a prayer. But this, if this is, expresses your heart, you can pray something like this. Jesus, take control of me. I surrender to you. I believe you're God. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And right now, in this moment, I ask you to forgive me my sins. 
I ask you to come into my life and to take control of me. I commit my life to you. I confess you as my Lord and my Savior. Jesus, help me, change me, guide me, make me new, make me who you want me to be. I want to encourage you, if you just prayed that prayer, if you're on the online church platform, uh, there, there's a button you can click on and let us know about that. I encourage you to take the next step of uh, clicking on the prayer button and telling somebody about your decision. Let us help you with that. If you've got questions, uh, click on that prayer button. If you uh, need to talk to somebody, click on that prayer button. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, let us know in the comments section that you received Christ or that you'd like to talk to somebody about that. Or you can email us at info at thetruelifechurch.com. You can message me on Facebook uh, at uh, Jimmy Inman in Facebook Messenger. But if there's some way that we can assist you in following Christ and taking your next steps or you have some other need or you need prayer, please uh, let us know. Uh, Thank you for joining uh, with us. Uh, Our band is going to close us with a song as we continue to celebrate Easter. We continue to celebrate the risen Christ. But uh, we encourage you as they sing to continue to participate in the chat room, to click that prayer button, to reach out, to let us know if we can minister to you in some way.